Just for a change is the Smiths with a track titled Nowhere Fast from the album Meat is Murder. I'm David Eastall and this is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest and it's going to be a Wolfhound special because I spoke to Dave Callahan from the band quite a few months ago now um, to find out more about life, love and poetry. So I'll bring you that interview broken up into about three or four easy to digest at all segments for your delight as well as the usual award worthy playlist. But to get the party rolling, I think we should play your favourite mine. This is Anti Minus Touch. Give it presents. 
Breezy pop, breezy indie pop, really. That is the Wolfhounds, and that was a track called Anti Minus Touch. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. Um, always playing the finest in indie pop and always trying to interview um, a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of Dave Callahan from the band, who I spoke to quite a few months ago. So that was being on the back burner. So I've got that interview. But before all that, I think we should have some exciting admin because I love all that kind of stuff. You can contact me if you want on Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86show. And also to say that all the shows have been um, archived. So you can listen to them on um, podcasts via sort of um, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and also Mixcloud. So do check them out because I have a lot and they're all fantastically interesting. If you like that sort of thing, if you don't, then... um, I don't know why you're listening. But anyway, I think we'll play another track and then the first part of the interview. This is the Wolfhounds again, and this is Lost But Happy. I know the story of my life. And that's the Wolfhounds with a track called Lost But Happy. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be the first part of my interview with Dave Callahan from the band. Um, and we've been chatting, as you do, for quite some time. And then got on to the interesting thing about why we were talking together. And it's to do, well, it was to do with the, the Wolfhounds had sort of, um, well, there was many reasons. But one of them was that the uh, the complete John Peel sessions has have been um, released titled Hands in the Teal and this is on a record label called or titled A Turntable Friend that's the company actually so um, yes there you go 12 tracks all worthy and mostly produced by the one and only Dale Griffith one time drummer with Mott the Hoople I thought you'd like that sort of information but um, this is the first part and this is where I'd been asking Dave about whether it felt a good good thing to do to archive the back catalogue and this was his answer Dave, take it away. Yeah, but it's it's a it's a how can I put it? Um, it's very much a an incomplete work at the moment. I mean, we we only own our early stuff, which we've had re-released. Fortunately, um, the rest of the stuff is owned by other companies who don't see any financial advantage in reissuing it and won't sell it to us. So it's kind of in limbo at the moment. Though you can stream it on Spotify and so forth, you know. Right, the dear old uh, Spotify. 
it would be it would, it would be nice to have you know a proper a properly archived reissue like we did with the first LP Unseen Ripples. We've got three other LPs after that, and it'd be great to have singles and B sides and demos and live recordings. You know, in a nice double album package like that first album, yes. and do them all like that. You know, ideally, but um, it's either waiting for us to find a loophole and get them back, or is waiting or it's some for someone to express uh, some interest and be willing to front. You know, the uh, not just interest in a money form as well as intellectual form. Unfortunately. Yes. We can't afford to do it ourselves. So No. And is it one of those things, because I've sort of noticed and occasionally seen, obviously, people of a certain generation sort of trying to sort of work out the legalities of who owns what music and how to um, try to sort it out. Is it something that you've sort of bonded with other bands talking about? Uh, to, to a degree, I, I, I'm not going to mention who, but I've had, dis- had discussions with people in other bands on labels we were on, both when I was in War- the Warfounds and when I was in Moonshake, about how to go about getting stuff back. Some have been lucky and managed to get their stuff back. Yeah. Uh, others, others like me, it, it just it's just such a headache, and you have to read old contracts, and uh, even then you're reading and thinking, how could I have been so idiotic as to sign this? But, you know, <laughs> you're young and you do. Yes, well, I guess that's it. And also, just to give people a bit of a background to the Wolfhounds, could you say, you know, how it all began? Because obviously, you know, you were sort of there in the mid-80s. So obviously, indie pop had um, start, had sort of come along. I mean, I put indie pop down at sort of a bit earlier, basically between the years of 83 to 87. That was when the Smiths existed. But there was a little bit of a post-pop post-punk scene and then the indie scene started to come together quite a lot so how did because because 85 was kind of your ground zero but had you been in bands before that oh it's, it's, i started playing guitar when i was i think 12 um and i was in bands from i think the age of 15 i, I someone on Twitter just contacted me and said they were at my very first gig at a Haroldwood Neighbourhood Centre in just on the outskirts of London in Essex and when I was 15 and 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 even then Paul Clark who became the guitarist in the Wolfhounds was playing bass in that first band and we we, we it was kind of almost like a, a little club we used to meet up once a week at the you know at the weekend sometimes in the evening and to just you know around each other's bedrooms just to write songs but it was like a hobby it was like doing you know like like doing book club or something, you know? Yes. A bit, a bit exciting, you know? There were ideas for it. It was a creative thing. There were ideas being thrown around, but we never thought, we're completely naive. We know we'd, even despite the fact that punk had happened and people had been making their own records for years, we we just thought we'd never have a chance. We didn't have the money to even record a demo. It took like five of us and a couple of mates to raise the £90 to record our first demo, and that was in 1984. We hadn't done any recording for five years. Like no one had any money. You know, we all lived in, you know, the best of us, one or two of us had a job. The rest of us were on the dole and had no hope of really getting a job of much sort. Yes, this is all true. Uh, but was it a bit like, just going back a bit early then, was it a bit like the Beatles and the Skiffle scene when you were playing in sort of very small little youth clubs and, yes, those early days? Yeah, the, the, good, the good thing about it was, was, it was, it, that, was that was the thing that was accessible to us. It really was... I'd go to my local youth club, which was the Albemarle in Harold Hill. And for some reason, I don't know who it was because I was very young, but someone there booked uh, bands like Alternative TV and Patrick Fitzgerald to come along and play there. The Purple Hearts, I saw their first gig, the Mod Revival Band, saw their first gig there when I was about 15 as well. And there were other local bands who used to support those bands. And, and it was it was very uh, accessible and open. I remember this uh, band in from Hornchurch of Raynham called On the Outside, and I just knew them. And they said, "Do you want to come up and and you know read some lyrics over one of our songs that's an instrumental?" So I just got up at the age of fifteen and started yelling some rubbish poem I'd written over the top. Yes. And and so so, so you, you really, there really was still that punk rock kind of um the audience can just get on stage when they feel like it. Kind of you, you could call it chaos. You could call it kind of you know open access. It was like the 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 open music university, you know. Yes. You, you, you could, the, the, it was it was accessible to do it to, to to play instruments and 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 form bands, but the actual industry itself seemed seemed out of touch for, for us. It was, there was there was no way we we would ever have taken it, you know, thought it was serious that we could make a record, and it just happened. But in Romford, which was the big town near where we lived, a a guy called a uh, uh, Ron was starting a fanzine called Everything Counts, which I, I haven't... And then we had a local club in Romford called The Res, which used to put on 
loads of bands. He's put on like the Triffids second gig in this country and, and put on loads of people like Screaming Blue Messiahs and My Bloody Valentine, all these bands that were coming up in the mid eighties. And, and we were lucky enough to have, to have a, have that scene to hang around. A guy called Chris French used to run the club and, and he had a very uh, go out and get them kind of attitude. We just used to go to gigs at Dingwalls in London or the Marquee and walk up to the bands and say, do you want to play in Romford? And they would, which meant that, the, again, that we would have decent bands to support when we played locally. And um, it, it was it was that kind of a, that kind of meeting of a, just kind of people very key, very in, very in love with music and the whole scene and 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 keen to bring it out to, to us and, and willing to go and just just having the, the youthful kind of hubris of just going up to people and asking them, you know, something which I still have, really. If it's, it's like if I want someone to sing on my record, I just like email them or write them or ring them up and just ask them straight away. I'll go up to them in the pub and ask them. It's kind of I, I don't do things very professionally at all. I, I never really do anything official. <laughs> Excellent. And going back to your 12-year-old self, I mean, what was it that um, made you want to play the guitar or the opportunity? I just wondered who you were listening to or the music that was in your house at the time. Uh, I, I got a W.H. Smith's voucher for Christmas in 1976 when I was 12. And I, I went to W.H. Smith's and I bought uh, Sergeant Pepper, <laughs> uh, the Who's Who's Next and Dr. Feelgood Stupidity, which was a live album, which was that had been number one for ages that, that year. They were like, and it just, I guess in a way, these were kind of things that would, would be keystones to discovering punk rock and kind of, you know, indie pop, if you like. If, if you combine all those things, you pretty much, and, and add a bit of noise and atonality to it, you pretty much get us. Yes, that's quite interesting, because I had an older brother um, who was a bit more, I suppose, I, I sort of, I would say, you know, I looked up to him and slightly, I suppose, worshipped him at the time when I was quite young. And he, his early record collection, which was probably the slightly mid, mid-70s mid or early to mid-70s, I mean, that had, you know, his first records was bizarrely um, Sergeant Pepper and also Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And I'd sort of discovered these when he was out of the house and would play them and thought, God, this is just, yeah, music is amazing. I didn't realise that. Um, what those albums were, were, you know, were going to be, what they kind of would mean, because at the time, you know, I suppose the Beatles weren't that fashionable in the mid seventies, were they? Really, and Sergeant Pepper definitely was just like, well, that was just one of their albums, you know. So, yeah, well, to be honest, I went off Sergeant Pepper a lot more quickly than I went off the other two. Um, I preferred the White Album once I got it about a year later. But um, I'd, I'd say I'd, I didn't really have any mentors, mentors as 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 far as is it mentor or mentor? I don't know. But anyway, I didn't have really have anyone to guide me. What we did have. Was um I'd I'd like three things when I was really little, I, I had like uh, programs like the London Weekend Show with Janet Street Porter presenting, who who showed lots of live bands playing gigs in small clubs in London, most notably the Sex Pistols, but there were others too that she showed Doctor Feelgood and other people. Um, we also had the music press. We had like at the time at the end of 1976, I think there were five weekly music papers, most of which you could get together with your pocket money. So you had the Enemy, Sounds, Melody Maker short-lived national rock star and record mirror all of whom were covering exciting underground music and then I also had the fortune that when my parents moved house we had a council house until uh, 1970 and they were able to buy a, a small a modest private house for, you know in the end and when we moved in there someone had left their seven inch collection by the dustbin there was literally a meter high stack of seven inch singles which had things like Johnny Kidd and the Pirates shaking all over. It had Julie London in it. It had the Beatles in it, the Stones in it. It had had Bo Diddley in it. There were lots of there's lots of rubbish in it as well. And but there was there were loads of really great things. And some of those records I still had. So we basically I got a free, you know, jukebox standard seven inch collection at the age of I don't know seven or eight. I, I had those records and they just used to sit in the corner and they've still got like my name written on when I could barely write, you know. <laughs> That's fantastic, actually. <laughs> yes. A lot, of them, a lot of them I got rid of in the end, but there's there's probably a core 50 or 60 singles that I still have there. Yes. Well, that's that's amazing. And then sort of as as we progress through the 70s and then into the early 80s, obviously the, the political time was kind of quite, um, yes, quite harsh, really. And then we had obviously Thatcherism. So during that early 80s period, there was a lot of unemployment and there was kind of like the job seekers allowance and the feeling that things weren't going to go anywhere far. So for you and the band, was it the case because having interviewed quite a few people, they 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 got into bands because there really wasn't much else to do, and there was no kind of 
yes, no career, no course to go, no university. So it was like, okay, we'll just do the music for a bit and see what happens while we, I don't know, wait for our gyro to come through. It wasn't even as planned out that there wasn't really much to do. And we had creative bones in our body and, and, and we love music. So it really was, um, well, I won't talk about other, other entertainments we had, but, um, but certainly, certainly the things that kept us occupied was we're sitting around each other's houses playing guitars and talking about ideas in music, really. Um, as far as jobs go, we, we either had, I, I was lucky in that in the, I did okay at my A-levels and, and I ended up doing a year at a polytechnic, which was kind of like the, the poor, poor man's university at the time. And, um, and, and then the band started taking off and I dropped out. I know now that I probably could have stayed on at college and got a degree, but I dropped out so we could tour and so forth. But, um, but yeah, there wasn't much in the way of, of jobs, really. There, not, nothing that I, I guess some people could, could get apprenticeships. But, uh, but really, I was, I was just looking at, you know, retail jobs, really. Yes. Um, it, it was, and they were low paid and, and, you know, you didn't really think you had much of a future, you know. Yeah, because at the time, you know, that early 80s period, you know, Top of the Pops, which I think most people watch because there wasn't that much else to do. But um, yes, the charts are full of those kind of shiny bands with big hair and big shoulder pads and that tre Trevor Horn sound. So when you were playing music and sort of getting your band together, did you, you know, watch, did you used to watch Top of the Pops and think, God, perhaps we should sound like that? Or did you just think we can't sound like that? Because No, because no, I'd, I'd already started to like, what I guess what I could call raw music or you know we'd, we'd sort of grown up listening to, to punk to a degree but we were a little bit too young more like post-punk it'd be like kind of a you know metal box by pill and the slits and and kind of and we also got into kind of um I guess 60s garage you'd call it we, we had the Nuggets album we'd started buying Pebbles albums and the Stooges and things so we, as far as rock music went we liked raw stuff and a lot of I remember a lot of my girlfriends at the time were really into sort of things like John Coltrane and Miles Davis and 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 even Astrid Gilberto and Bossa Nova stuff. So we had all that coming in as well. It was it was basically stuff you could get for a two ninety nine nice price in, <laughs> in our price records. We just, or Woolworths, you know. I remember going into Woolworths and buying Kill City by Iggy Pop and two Ornette Coleman albums for under ten pounds. Um, unfortunately, the spending the spending money I did manage to get, I did blow it all on records largely. <laughs> uh, we, we didn't even buy strings for guitars, really. If, if we had four strings left, that's what we'd practice with, really. And that is the first part of my interview with David or Dave Callahan, depends how how much or how well you know him, really. Anyway, this is David Eastall. That's a fact. And this is the C eighty six show. And we're going to play a bit of music because I just think you can um, just keep the party rolling. And this is going to be the single that um, I suppose you'd say turned me on to the Wolfhands, and uh, I can remember it well. John Peel played it. And this is Another Lazy Day on Another Lazy Hay. That's probably not quite the title, is it? Let me have a look. No, I can't see it. Anyway, take it away. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yes. Yeah. 
skull is from an owl's crawl Blazing white fleece to crack in the tar Its teeth still smoke black Since the flesh slacked on another hazy day On the lazy branch From a cactus, rotten and brown The branch collapses, the bird has flown The drunk lies down, had tilted over eyes His wounds licked by flies His wounds licked by flies On another hazy day That's the Wolfhounds with a track titled Another Lazy Day on the Lazy A. This is David Esau. This is the C86 show. This is going to be the second part of my interview with Dave Callahan. Um, yes, it is. I just wanted to check. I got his name right. I know it's late and I'm getting tired, but enough of that. This is going to be, um, yes, when I, I'd been asking how long it had taken um, for them recording and practicing before they got a sound that. Uh, John Peel wanted to play, and this was his answer. Dave, take Almost it away. Almost immediately, there was like no question that you would just you would learn guitar just to play songs by the Beatles or something. It, it was it was immediately as soon as you learned a few chords, you'd start writing your own songs, and and you'd start experimenting with those chords to see what they sounded like when you moved fingers from them without looking in books. I basically had a, a, a few lessons during which I earned I learned I think a. Uh, E, A, D, G, and C chords, just major chords on the first three frets. Everything else I know and and have learned since then, I've basically taught myself by experimenting. And that's what we did. And and, and there's demos on our Bandcamp page from, I think, 1980 when we were, me and Paul Clark and a friend of ours called Dave Lewin were calling ourselves 22,000 Flowers. And it's pretty much, it sounds like a, it's fairly naive, but it then recorded on cassette, but it pretty much emulates what was going on on Rough Trade Records in the late 70s, I would say. Yes, and one thing that that always slightly boggled me, or boggled, yes, boggled me, um, is that even though when bands started to make it and they got in the front of the NME and were selling lots of records and uh, getting in the indie charts and doing well, there still wasn't a huge amount of money, you know, flowing around. So most bands were quite broke even during their sort of glory period. Yeah, but you could, you could, there wasn't much money, but you could sign on the dole. Um, you could, you could. Uh... Uh, let's say you could uh, work in the black market economy, um, uh, you know, or market stalls, or uh, washing washing up, really, isn't it? Do some, in, do some independent trading. I should, I should say uh, uh, <laughs> euphemistically. Um, or you, or you, but the thing is, the thing was, there wasn't wasn't a lot of you didn't have much future, but you but you could still kind of walk in and out of a job. You know, you could do a job for a while, earn just enough money to live on and, and to rehearse with and, and buy a few guitar strings and maybe rent a van if you had a gig. And then if you had a tour, you could leave or you could take some holiday and come back again. Yes, that's so quite amazing. Like where if you leave a job, you might be out of work for nine months. That really wasn't the case then. And plus the dole, it wasn't a lot of money and it was hard to live on it, but you could live on it. 
Yes, well, there's also there was also housing benefit, and you got your council tax paid, which at the time seemed fantastically decadent, really. But also, the you know, because I I spoke I spoke to was oh yes, Fast Eddie from Motorhead, and he said that um, they would often go up to see go to gigs, and things would get would get cancelled, and then they would have to sort of go oh god, we have got no money to get home, so they would have to sabotage the van to get you know to get the AA to pick them up. So I just wondered how finances <laughs> were sort of you know touring around the country because the thing about that. that that, 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 that happened to us that kind of thing we, we, we i remember we I'd, I'd agreed some a gig in i think a, a gig in uh edinburgh i think it was with a promoter and we drove all the way up there and had had enough money to get there but not enough to get back and we we're relying on the gig to pay for the journey back and and when i got up there there was no adverts or anything and i rung the promoter and he neglected to tell me that it was cancelled um so we had just about enough money to get to Preston, where a friend of ours called Jeff was living at that time. And so this this was meant to be a one-night stand in Edinburgh, where we'd get enough money to have done the whole trip and maybe have five pounds each at the end of it. But what happened was we ended up going to Preston and living in our mate's house, all five of us, for a week. Uh, and essentially busking to raise the money to, to get back to London. And we, we organised a gig in a local pub and basically passed the hat around. And we... <laughs> just about got enough money to get the van back to London. Yes. Uh, of course, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not. Memory doesn't serve now whether we had to pay, whether we'd rented the van or borrowed it. But obviously, if we had rented the van, we had to come up with that money too. Um, that's just the problem with these things happening so long ago. But yes, you could end up pretty much in deep doo-doo a lot of the time. You, you're always you're always flying by the seat of your pants, you know? Yes, well, I, I sort of realised, having sort of heard a lot of people talk about it, was that um, communication was quite tricky in those days, as in you mo- mostly had to go to a phone box with lots of two Ps and, um, yes, try and get through to people and, and, you know, like... So you couldn't just kind of easily contact somebody. I remember, I think it was Tracy Thorne was saying that when she was in it, was it Hull University, she had to go to a phone box and get a phone call from Paul Weller to you know about sort of guesting either on a single or doing a, a concert with him and you're thinking oh yeah you just didn't sort of get a text or a, a call yeah. on your mobile or an email you had to sort of stand around at phone boxes looking a bit sort of dubious. Yeah I remember using phone boxes a lot and actually our first record deal with the Pink Label in uh, 1980 we signed in 1985 even though the first record was not till 86 um, I basically agreed to that so so that because he, he, he basically got a demo tape that I handed to him at a June bride's gig and and rang me up at two o'clock in the morning at my mum's house and of course I didn't want to make my my mum wake you know wake my mum up so as soon as he said do you want to make a record I said yes and put the phone down again and went back to sleep and then of course they'd, they'd heard the phone call anyway but basically I agreed to sign because because I didn't want to wake my parents up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Because, because um, you know, obviously most bands have this kind of great five-year narrative and, and you're, you also lasted five years, didn't you, during that sort of period? And it sounded like it was quite, um, well, I suppose... It, tough you know having to sort of go around in sort of camp in a van sort of traveling all around the country and sort of trying to get things together so did you know were the forces you know was that part of the reason that the band just lasted five years i just wondered if it was this that was the case it doesn't seem like five years it seems like the whole of the 80s because we were messing around for the first five years anyway in various forms but um it we were very young and naive and, and perhaps didn't value the opportunities we were being given. I mean, we were all over the music press for a good year and and one of the band refused to go on tour for a while, which didn't help. You know, we should have been riding our wave and we couldn't. Um, we had, you know, we just got confused about sort of what direction we wanted to go in. It was all, it was all stuff you just throw at a bunch of 20-year-olds and we all start panicking. It wasn't like a, we, we didn't have a, didn't really have any management. We didn't have it. We had no idea how the music industry worked. I mean, it's not like anyone, people weren't intelligent, but we were just absolutely naive. We had no grasp on what the music industry involved. We thought we could just like, you know, I guess, I guess dance through it like the Sex Pistols or something, you know, or, or like they appeared to be and just take the mick out of everything. But uh, if, actually, that's not true. They had management, and so did all the other, you know, so did the Jesus and Mary Chain, all the other people that were caused to kerfuffle, actually had some machinery behind them and some infrastructure working, pulling all the strings, if you like. Uh, we had none of that, really. And, and when we signed to the Pink Label, it turned out they were just about, just as naive at putting out records as we were at making them. Um, so, you know, even, even their connections with creation, who were much more wised up, we probably should have 
much though I, I'm still friends with one of the Pink Label people, but we probably should have hung on in, done a few more gigs and signed to someone a bit more together, like Creation or someone else. Yes. Because um, we certainly, we certainly at the time, for that for that year or so, on the London circuit, we were looked on as one of the kind of big fish in the small pond, really. You know, we, we were one of the bands who were going to make it, according to most people. And we had no, we didn't respect that. We didn't value that particularly. It was just, I guess we were all kind of, we didn't we didn't think that anyone would take us seriously and when they were taking us seriously we continued to think no one would take us seriously which is ridiculous really because it's certainly a few of us wanted nothing more than to be you know creative musicians really yes. um, it's just i think it's part of a it's almost like a working or lower middle class kind of self-destruction thing going on there's where you haven't you know you haven't been brought up like boris johnson where you think you deserve everything you get in, in fact most of us had imposter syndrome from the first from the first second that we were in a band, um, but now looking back, I can see that we actually were pretty damn good compared to most people, and um, and it's kind of a you know in a way I'm kind of a bit gutted that we we were so kind of a so village idioty about it really. Yes, but we managed to carry on as you say to until 1990, and and as far as far as we're concerned, make made progressively better records, even though everyone seems to like all the, the 1986 stuff first, we, we, we became more and more kind of diametrically opposed to what almost anyone else was doing in the country. There were a few bands we, after about 1987, there were a few bands in Britain we we respected, but not many. I mean, Dogface Hermans and King of the Slums and a few others we, we thought were, if if not kindred spirits, then other people who were kicking, kicking at the but the pricks, as Samuel Beckett would say, you know. Yes, because um, because I know this is a totally unfashionable thing to say, but I suppose I haven't sort of heard so many people talk about their kind of musical career, which does normally last about five years. And in in the you know eighties indie world, it you know it was like you got a single together, then you know if you got you know that played on the John Peel show and then a John Peel session, that sort of was the sort of push to get an album and then do a bit more tour, which was kind of beyond the normal sort of local community wherever that band was. And then yeah. often it was the second album that kind of trips people up. And if anybody ever did America, it seemed to de- totally destroy them when they got home. So they that definitely kind of broke them up so when I look at bands like you too and to a degree people like the police I think god actually they they did get it together and they weren't the sort of you know as you said the Boris Johnson you know people who just expect to have it and it didn't matter if they don't really know what they're talking about they'll still just say well I'm still right you know that kind of kind of I suppose arrogance which is part of the class system in a way so do you do you think when you look at those bands thinking god they weren't that great but they did sort of keep their eye on the ball and somehow work out what to do quite quickly um I I guess I think those bands did uh, you know you two always look like they 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 not just wanted it but, but thought that they deserved it um, but we've got we've got no connection with those with those people. It was it was nothing. You know, we were we had. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how to. Do. We we didn't have that second album syndrome. To be honest, we had, we had a problem with the first LP. Our, our LPs got better after that. We we, we, could, we had a, an evolutionary process going on. Whereas you know we didn't have that kind of throwing everything at the first LP and then having nothing for the second. It was more a case of a. We were stupidly we came to the first LP and we kind of panicked and we dumped virtually an entire set of of what some of which were very strong songs and and put loads of new stuff on it. Partly it was being inspired by Wire and The Fool, who would always, you'd go and see them promoting their last LP and they'd be playing the next one already. And we, we wanted to keep, you know, to keep the the wheels turning creatively like that. So we we just dumped a whole load of great songs and, and then wrote some good ones and some not so good ones and put those on the first LP. But by the time we did the second LP, we were on a creative role, but no one was listening by then. And we did the last three LPs in the space of a year and a half, you know, almost like the Kinks or the Beatles used to. And then they all stand up on their own still, you know? Yes. And obviously you changed record labels at that point as well, hadn't you? Uh, yeah. Well, the Pink Label was, was doomed to failure, I think, really, just because... You know, there, there was no money, and and, it, and what there was was badly managed. You know, and I'm, I'm still. We we were so naive that none of us had bank accounts. We did our first uh, John Peel session, and then a replay. Got the fees, the combined fees, which were about six hundred and one pounds fifty, I think, which was a lot of money for you know as far as we were concerned. And because we didn't have bank accounts, we got the BBC to pay the check into the pink label, and it immediately went into their debt. So we never saw a penny of money from the Peel sessions either. <laughs> 
God, that's so good. It's I, like... I went to open a bank account in that West, and for this to this day, I hate that bank. They're, they're no, they're no worse than other banks, but it's kind of irrational, really. But I, the reason we had to pay the uh, we, we had another we had another check a royalty check that came through and I, and I went to open a band bank account and I had a form that I had you had to get countersigned by a doctor so I had to go to my doctor um the, the last time he'd seen me was a diagnosing me with an SU I think but, <laughs> but, but, but so I got the form countersigned went and paid the check in to NatWest with with my new form waited waited a it was royalties from the pink label and waited about three weeks until they sent me a letter Saying that they couldn't open a bank account for us because I because I, I you know I can't remember the reason they give it it was basically amounted to I wasn't respectable enough. Um, by which time the found funds weren't available, and when I tried to open another bank account, the check bounced anyway. So <laughs> that's that's the kind of nonsense you 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 went you went through to 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 try and get a, a few measly hundred quid in the mid eighties, you know. I know, the mid-80s, it was a tricky period. We were, you know, I don't know, obsessed with the SWP, Eaton TVP and getting very angsty about Thatcher, Cher- Chernobyl and anything else, really. But anyway, that was the second part of my interview with Dave um, Callahan from The Wolfhands. I've got another bit to play. But before all that, I think we should have another track. This is titled Happy Shopper. I bet some people have just had a Proustian flashback there. That's the Wolfhands and a track titled Happy Shopper. This is going to be the third part of my interview with Dave from the band where I've been talking about sort of the trickiness of admin and mentioned that uh, with the Smiths, Johnny Marr was um, basically having sort of managed the band and doing all the bookings, even sort of hiring vehicles and the pressure that got to him. And um, yes, I asked Dave if um, he was having a similar experience and this was his answer. Dave? How was it running the band? I can, I can see why he would feel like that, and I would have felt like that at the same time as well on my low, kind of lower uh, rung down the ladder. Now, now I can see that that's just, in a way, because how can I put it? Um, because you had like safety nets, like the doll and so forth. Then um, you could indulge yourself in that in that kind of attitude where you know I can't hire a band because I need to write a song. You know, I should I should be writing lyrics. I shouldn't I shouldn't be a you know, uh, booking a gig, you know, which is something that the band like the Wedding Present never went through. They 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 seem to be so DIY. I remember them being on tour, and David Gedge had like a, you know one of the first mobile phones in the back of the van, and they were organising everything themselves. And I used to think, well, that's 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 terrible. They should be concentrating on the music. But now I'm, I'm you know nowadays we all have to do that. We all have to like 
hold down jobs or or do freelance or you know or gig economy stuff and try and do the creative stuff on the side and sometimes it pays and sometimes it doesn't everyone's juggling stuff no one can just sit there all day and indulge themselves into the in the uh, kind of you know I'm, I'm i'm a songwriter and that's all i'm going to do all day no one can do that anymore no but if you can remember you know i'm sure you can when when we sort of hear people talk about why they got into music I can't remember the, what the year was when people stopped saying this, but they'd always always say, you know, well, it's sex, drugs and rock and roll. And then obviously someone said, actually, you should really just stop saying that because, you know, that could <laughs> some of the things we did on tour probably would you know, put us into prison. So obviously there was that attitude with a lot of bands that used to just say that kind of as an automatic response. And it was all about sort of, as they said, sex, drugs and rock and roll. So sort of trying to sort of sort out the admin as well would probably be a bit too much for a lot of those people. Uh, it's true that you can't really do, do all that juggling and plate spinning pissed. <laughs> it's just it's not possible to do it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, and doing that that world. So when, because the other thing that sort of tripped people up during that particular period was the, the, the dance scene started to happen and then grunge and the sort of Seattle music scene and then Sonic Youth and Big Black and bands like that. So did you, were you sailing through that without any kind of interest at all in the, the Manchester scene or sort of what Sonic Youth were doing? I, 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 I didn't like Acid House. I, I didn't really like the Manchester thing. I soft, soft spot for a few of the Happy Mondays things. Um, I, I loved hip hop. I, I, I mean, and that, that was quite. That's kind of a, a, a an unknown strand of the, the C eighty six kind of thing, if you like. Because Age of Chance, who are a good band from Leeds, used to organise hip hop nights back in in up in Leeds, and I had a girlfriend in Leeds at the time, so I used to go and visit her, and we used to go to the Age of Chances hip-hop nights where they used to play all the you know early Eric B and all this LL Cool J stuff and that and I thought hip-hop was fantastic you know and and but I didn't like Acid House because it just sounded like you know it just sounded like a bunch of hairy-headed hippies to me I wasn't very keen um I, I, I loved all that post-hardcore stuff in in the states I think you can hear that influence in us probably almost from the start you know on the, on the Cut the Cake EP we went a bit soft for a while, but you can you can hear all those bands like Big Black and Sonic Youth have been you know we've been hearing them. We we like we like Fugazi a lot. Um, so so I'd I'd say all those strands of music I I loved really you know I, I I've never really liked kind of mindless kind of metronomic dance music much. Yes. But but, but hip hop was fantastic. Post hardcore scene was fantastic. Um, I liked a lot of the indie pop stuff. I liked it all. You know I thought there was there was some there was some great kind of you know. Actual proper house and techno records in the eighties were good. It was more acid house. I just thought was a bit moronic, yes. really. It was a lot of drugs, but yes, I, I can remember. I suppose being obsessed with John Peel and sort of being of that age where suddenly anything John Peel played, I tried to sort of get hold of or go to see a, a, an artist or band. And um, yes, so I, I went to. I think it was in eighty five. There was this big kind of hip hop thing at Wembley Arena, organised by the guy who used to do those streets. Street sound Street compilations, yeah. somebody yeah. can, and um, yes, like you said, the early... That's more electro than hip-hop, wasn't it? But I know, the, I know the kind of thing you mean, yeah. Oh, electro. So yes, going back to your com collection, you know, with John Peel that's just come out, um, obviously he must have played a big part in helping the band elevate from sort of your Romford days into the bigger arena. Yeah, there, there's... I mean, there's... Despite our our best efforts at self sabotage, we 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 did all right. We 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 got, you know, J John Peel was behind us, you know, all, all the way in those early years. He seemed to desert us from from the second album onwards. Unfortunately, did play us once or twice, but we really had didn't. I don't know why why he wasn't interested anymore, but he wasn't. Um, but but yeah, we we had we had a bit of a wave that we we could we could ride. We seemed to be fairly popular. There would be a crowd whenever we turned up to play, mostly. So um, yes. So, not sure what you're getting at, though. <laughs> no, well, I was just, well, I suppose it was to do with uh, quite a lot of people have mentioned that their John Peel sessions were probably better recordings than, than what they did on their album, you know, because of the yeah. technology. And also they had the famous Dale Griffith as well, who was producing a lot of stuff. So I just wondered if you listening to those were like, oh, God, they were actually better than what we did when we were with the Pink Label. Now I can say that for certain that, that some of the recordings are better. And there's, there's a very good reason for that in that the John Peel sessions were, were basically live recordings with a few straight overdubs. You didn't have a chance to to mess around with it too much. You were basically doing what you did live to the best of your ability. The problem with engineers and studios in the mid-80s was that they, they would spend hours basically 
you know, putting various compressed delays on your snare and getting all those kind of chorusy kind of 80s sound effects on the instruments, which you didn't really want. Um, but engineers often made out like you had to have, and it was it was an ongoing battle to stop it. Them try, them trying to make it sound like big rock, and you trying to make it sound like something you could actually like and listen to, and and. We mostly won those battles, but in a, in a way, it kind of got softened a bit, and and we went down a few blind alleys to to get to uh, recordings, which I think still sound great, like our like Blown Away, which is our third LP. But yeah, so so the the, the Peel sessions were were rawer and cap, captured the youthful energy, and and the band, as you would have seen them down the old White Horse in Brixton, or or the you know. The <laughs> Leicester Princess Charlotte or wherever, you know. <laughs> yes. And when it came to 1990, when the band were finishing, did you have a moment where you just all came together and said, that's it, let's let's quit this? Did you have a Ziggy Stardust moment? No. Uh, well, we, would, we just had no energy and money left. We'd, 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 we'd uh, been darlings of, of the year and then, and then we, we'd, we'd completely exhausted ourselves doing three LPs in the space of a year and a half and we had no money we were still rehearsing in, in like I think the drummer's bedroom um, and and it just seemed like there was nowhere to go and we'd had like interest from I think uh, I think Homestead in the States were interested in signing us we, we kind of made, made some progress creation were interested in signing us um, after after the blown away LP and we, we had to do another LP before that. And so, so it seemed like we, we, we did another LP and then they lost interest a bit. And, and so it seemed like all our chances had gone and that we'd be in that bedroom forever and have no money. And it just made no sense. So we, I, I went along and saw, uh, I, I'd, I'd fallen in love with, uh, with sampling technology, partly because of liking hip hop records and partly because we'd got the chance to use, um, a sampler on like the B size to son of nothing and, and a couple of things on, on the attitude LP. And I really, I've been inspired by it. You know, this could, this, I thought it was a revolutionary tool, which of course it was. And, and I thought there's no way the band's going to be into this and I can't afford one anyway. And I went to Alan McGee and I said, well, I know you've been interested in this, but I'm going to break up the band. You know, I don't, I don't want to, don't want to do this. And I, but I am, I am interested in forming a new band that involves sampling and I explained to him my ideas about what I wanted to do. And he said, well, he basically, him and Dick Green at Creation offered me a kind of development deal where I'd put a band together and they'd pay for it, rehearsals and demo recordings. And that's how Moonshake started. And, and this, I think I can't be blamed for, for thinking, well, this is a much, much better, more exciting thing to do than sit in a bedroom being depressed about how we'd lost all our chances. So that I just, I just wanted to go. Yes. And then actually, the, the, the Andy and Frank from the Wolfhounds went to McGee separately and got a new band together with Paul Cannell, who was an artist called Crawl, and also got signed to Creation. So in a way, we ended up being signed to Creation, but in part rather than in whole. Yes. <laughs> and did it feel strange? Because normally when people have had that musical kind of moment, and it, like you said, it was more than just that five years, they just want a break, whereas actually you sort of bounced along and went straight into another outfit with a whole other gang of people. So... Did it feel a bit like, I don't know, like David Bowie, who was able to sort of go from one project to another with different musicians? So when you started rehearsing with the new band, Moonshake, did that feel completely like a new you? Yeah, I felt like I was, I was starting to breathe. I was starting to run, you know, rather than, rather than crawl. Um, at the time, our name felt, you know, the Wolfhounds felt tainted to us it was kind of like it was, it was just bad luck you know all the all the time you know we had all the chances possible and, and it just been bad luck and and kind of career suicide all, all along um but that said i mean well, we still managed to make good records i think which i'm proud of and 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 certainly the the creative side of it i was able i've been able to resuscitate with andy the guitarist and and make Wolfhound's records that I think are as good as anything we've ever done now. So so it, it it probably needed a long rest rather than an actual break, if you see what I mean. Yes. I mean we, we 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 weren't big enough to reform and capitalize on on any supposed previous success. Um I was only interested really in apart from one or two kind of gigs, like doing a C eighty six anniversary thing for Bob Stanley at the ICA, apart from one or two things like that, I wouldn't have done any more than that unless it had been a creative endeavor. I'm I'm not into backtracking. But it, it seemed like a continuation rather than a, a kind of 
you know, let's get together and play the hits in inverted commas, you know. Yes. And then obviously with Moonshake, you, you sort of took it up to the, the great period of uh, Britpop or just into Britpop. And obviously you had nothing to do with Britpop at all, did you? So you were sort no, of... Both. <laughs> <laughs> I we, 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 we have us and a few other bands that, were, that we we liked and hung out with and played together, like like Pram and Disco Inferno and Bark Psychosis and Stereo Lab. And there was a lot of them, actually, and Faith Healers and so forth. We all loathed Britpop. It was like we, we thought music had made a wrong turn, or at least I, I can only speak for myself, but I felt music had made a All right, there's some good Britpop records, but I thought music had made a wrong turn. I thought it was backward looking. It was trying to, it was like fake, like Tony Blair's socialism was fake. It was kind of looking back and trying, trying to fake swinging 60s again, and it just didn't work. And we felt that, rightly or wrongly, that we were doing something new and that, and that these, these kind of... Uh, these people were undermining our innovation, if you see what I mean, you know, by being popular. <laughs> yes. And when you look back at your both, the two bands and those two decades, which one do you have the fondest memories with? Um, it's both, really. It's, 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 it's a bit, being young is always, always full of excitement. It's also tainted because you're often miserable all the time because you're essentially a teenager mentally. And you're you're maintaining your teenageness well into your twenties by being in a band, but there's uh, there's there's lots of things that, that we we had fun doing. I mean, I stopped doing music for a couple of years because it absolutely stopped being fun in the late nineties, so I didn't, I didn't want to do it anymore. But but uh, but we, there was always fun to be had, and and always ideas flying everywhere, which is the situation I like to be in, where where people are trying stuff out, and where you know you you, you kind of hybridizing all these things and trying to make something new or something interesting or individual or idiosyncratic some something something distinct yes. distinct comes comes that comes out of the ideas that are flying around and I, I was having the most fun in those kind of situations and those situations existed both in the wolfhounds and in moonshake and exist again in the wolfhounds now and 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 working on solo stuff now so so that that's the situation I, I like to be in and and so I have fond memories of all of it, and I have bad memories of all of it as well. So yes, that's quite you know it's things quite... went horribly wrong sometimes, and personally wrong, and upsettingly wrong sometimes. So yes, I mean because with quite a few people who often you know look back, kind of realise they made some bad errors and and judgments, which kind of cost them both emotionally and financially, which took mm. them years to recover. But did mm. you manage to sort of? not have too many sort of rocky moments or massive disasters um i, I get yeah i guess no one died um, <laughs> it, 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 it came at the cost of a few good relationships um uh, I, it, it was it, there was a lot of privation the whole time really but we, we there was there were things that you things by being just being in a band that that being in two bands that had kind of a some cachet at some period of time um, meant I was doing things that no one else could have done, you know, and, and or, or very few other people could have done. It's like, you know, I was, I was essentially a pauper, but I was touring in, in the United States, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, in the end, it's kind of, I don't know. I'd much rather be a pauper in the back of a tour, tour van, you know, uh, being creative than be a pauper sitting in a shared, damp house in hackney really you know yes because just just briefly when you sort of got back together or you might have been back together a bit more than that but you brought that album out untied kingdom um was that an enjoyable experience yeah yeah it's, it's been it's been mostly fun the whole time really now because because we've got a, a, a more i guess a wiser attitude towards it really um we know how to i guess we know how to manage our affairs a bit better and and um yeah it's, it's it's we've been we've been doing it for i guess it, we've been going longer since we kind of got it together again than we did in the first place i think so that probably says something yes i'm, I'm proud of the records we're doing I, I, I think you know i'm i think there's a maturity to it that hasn't been um that hasn't watered down the edginess so so i'm pretty proud of that i think the song the songs are and lyrics are the strongest i've ever written Yes. Well, um, that's, that's, um, yes. Well, I suppose there's still sort of the political landscape is. Um, we thought it was kind of grim in the '80s, but um, somehow it does doesn't look quite so bad in a weird way. <laughs> yeah. Well, because there were safety nets. That's why now the safety nets have massive holes in, and 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 people are falling through them 
then 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 you have to try you have to have real bad luck to 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 end up on the streets now you just need to mess up a few times and you're there you know so it's it's become more like america now where the, where there's there's not so much there's there's hardly anyone there to catch you if you fall yes it's a grim one it, it's a it's a grim one and, and and there's also i mean people, young people in their teens and 20s shouldn't necessarily have to form bands i mean they've got their own music as well you know they they can do stuff with computers but i think there's even less of a chance of of a of a sparky 23 year old earning a living than there was in my day really it's just that there's the the doors have shut and the ladders have been pulled up and in, there's no industry kind of supporting you too much because records don't really sell you know yeah i mean there is there is something music for nothing you know and and yeah, nearly lastly, but because um, the one thing that a lot of people say is, thank God I'm not trying to make a living playing music now. I'm glad, you know, at the time in the 80s, you know, one can't appreciate it. But now looking at the scene and with, with a lot of people all sort of just forming bands and putting out the odd single, just think, God, you know, we didn't really make much money then. But at least there was a bit of money about and we were able to virtually survive. But if they were trying to make if they were 18 now, it would almost be like, I just don't know how people would do it. No, nor do I. I think I think that shows in that um, again. It's, it comes back to class again. I, I, people in bands now are almost invariably from, I'd, I'd say, middle class, quite well off backgrounds. That, 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 that there's nothing wrong with that. But but, uh, but what would make for a much more healthy scene is if people from all backgrounds were able to get involved, which is what they they were able to in until the late nineties. Yes, and just um, lastly, what would you say to your eighteen-year-old self? Or what would you advise an 18-year-old self starting out in music after sort of decades of being in the music world? Um, it'd be fairly simple stuff, really. It'd be like, st- stick out your degree. Um, <laughs> that's on a, on, a, on a personal, practical level. Um, I'd, I'd be more assertive with the rest of the band, really, because we're all, you know, we all took the mick out of each other. But But really... Knowing what I know now, with the kind of press we were getting, we were getting like, you know, four page features when our first EP had come out. We should have been touring our asses off all over the country. Instead, we and found some management. We should we should have been found an agent and some management and and really gone for it. But, uh, but we had no idea, really, just clueless individuals. I know it was um, a tricky time. Anyway, um, there's not much you can say after that. But um, yes, that is the end of the interview. And a big thank you to Dave Callahan for giving me the time for that interview. Uh, This has been David Esau on the C86 show. If you want to contact me without sounding too desperate, you can via Twitter or Facebook. Just go to at C86 show. And like I said, all the shows have been archived so you can hear them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and Mixcloud. Anyway, have a great week. I'm going to leave you with another track by, guess who? The Wolfhands. This is going to be Restless Spirit. No, Restless Spell. I should... drifting quite well and something throws a curse into the world it has a restless spell and when you settle down it starts again
But like you said, like you said, things are usually drifting quite well. Yeah? When something throws a curse into the world. A restless spell. Settle down, it starts again. From the warmth of the house into the pouring rain, running in the spell, restless spell. It's time to brush the chaff aside, and the oldest truth becomes an embarrassment, a lie. The sun rolls on its side and dies in a restless spell. And you pray to rid this curse from your skull. And then complain that a comfortable void is now. Into gear, into the restless spell. Into the restless spell. Always this pure, the outcome always pure.